Good evening. The meeting will come to order. Uh, clerk, was the meeting uh, um, properly noticed? Uh, please complete the roll call. Brongan. Here. Brown. Present. Cooper. Finley. Present. Garcia Sierra. Here. Hunt is excused. Jorgensen. Here. Ketchum. Here. Lazo is excused. Petkoshek. Here. Zaid is excused. Bang. Thank you. The minutes of our previous meeting were distributed to the committee. Are there any corrections or additions to the minutes? Okay. If there are no corrections, uh, uh, we will consider the minutes approved. Is there anyone registered for public comment tonight? No registrations. No registrations. Okay. Uh, seeing none, are there any disclosures or recusals? None of, none of those either. All right. The first um, discuss, discussion item is a presentation by UW professors Herman Goldstein and Cecilia Klingel, um, who will be uh, addressing um, broad issues on policing, but uh, primarily um, uh, on refining the police function uh, in a democratic society. And we hope that, um, that the committee members will have lots of questions for our two guests afterwards. Let me just give you a short uh, um, introduction to, to our guests, regarding our guests. Uh, starting with um, Professor Goldstein, uh, he, he, he has such, a, such an extensive bio, but I'm going to condense it uh, a bit. Um, and to say that he's an, uh, he, he's an emeritus uh, professor at the law school at uh, UW-Madison. Uh, from 1960 to 1964, he was an executive assistant to O.W. Wilson, the architect of the professional model of policing, uh, when at the time uh, there was a, a, a crisis occurring in the Chicago Police Department. Wilson, uh, with Herman's assistance, undertook, uh, undertook um, um, uh, several reforms that were implemented in the department, and then with a grant from the Ford Foundation um, to integrate research and teaching related to the police within the context of a law school, uh, Herman joined the Wisconsin faculty in 1964. Uh, he, he has uh, written extensively on policing um, regarding the discretion exercise of police, the policy-making role of police administrators, and the political accountability of the police. Um, some of his best-known works uh, would be Policing a Free Society, who is considered a Bible of, for progressive police departments, as well as problem-oriented policing. Uh, he has been a uh, consultant to numerous national and local groups, including the President's Commission on Law Enforcement Administration, and he has, um, he has consulted with numerous police agents, agencies, um, not only nationally but internationally as well. Professor Klingel uh, received her uh, G, uh, JD from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 05. And she has served as a law clerk to the Chief um, Judge Barbara Crabb of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin, also Judge Susan Black of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and Associate uh, Justice John Paul Stevens of the U.S. Supreme Court. She returned to the University of Wisconsin in 09 as a visiting uh, assistant professor and has been a permanent faculty member since 2011. Uh, Professor uh, Klingel's academic research focuses on criminal justice administration, 
with an emphasis on community supervision of, the, of those on conditional release. She is um, an associate reporter for the, for the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code Sentencing Revision, external co-director of the University of Minnesota Rubina Institute Sentencing Law and Policy Program, and past co-chair of the Academic Committee of the American Bar Association's Criminal Justice Section. So again, condensed the bios for both of them. Uh, needless to say, uh, we're extremely fortunate to have them. So if you could both come up um, next to Mario and, and have, a, have a seat, please. And, and we will want to make sure that the microphones are close to you, and then we'll begin your presentation. Of time because you have so much, so much to share with us. But we also want to leave ample time for for questions. So it's my um, my watch tells me that it's approximately quarter to six. Um, if you if we allow um, up until 20, 20, 25 after, and then open it up for questions at that time. And if you need more time. Can certainly go beyond. Okay. Thank you. I, my congratulations to Cecilia, who was this past week awarded tenure. Thank you. Well, yeah, I appreciate this opportunity, um, and. Uh, um, I recognize that uh, all of you are charged with uh, exploring one of the most critical, uh, complex issues, I think, in our society today. And I've got a great deal of admiration and respect for what you're doing and appreciation as a citizen of Madison for what you're doing. Um, I was uh, asked to uh, uh, contribute to sort of informing the committee of uh, some of the issues in, 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 in policing to help you in your, in your deliberations. And uh, 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 as Louise mentioned, we've got about 20 minutes, and I, I reflect on that against the background of 63 years studying and writing and, and working with uh, uh, police. So the, the challenge for me was what to do with, with those pressures. Uh, 20 minutes. Um, I want to mention in advance that uh, I'm not going to initially uh, uh, address the specific hot-button issues that I think uh, accounts for the creation of this committee uh, in, in the first instance. Um, uh, we may get to some of those in the, in the questioning period, but I, I thought the best contribution I could make, and, and let me say, too, that I'm very aware and very sensitive to the issues that are on your plate, having spent as much time as I have struggling with a, a lot of them in their most aggravated form. Um, but I'm going to focus instead on um, what I consider to be one of the central issues, just one central issues in, in the institution of policing, and, and then um, sort of drill down from that and try to point out the relevance of what I'm going to be doing in taking this big picture to what I, can, what I think is some, are some of your 
primary uh, concerns. Um, so uh, let me get going. Um, I suggested to, to Luis that I talk about the, the nature of the police function. You couldn't be any broader than that. You know, what is it, uh, especially in the complex nature of a, of a free society? And um, if, if we make inquiry of, 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 of the community, very often they talk about policing as consisting of law enforcement. You know, we, we refer to our police officers as law enforcement officers. Um, in, in the 1960s, when I did a study for then Mayor uh, Otto Feske here in Madison, and there was a dispute about police salaries, uh, we asked the members of the department to tell us in detail what is it you, you're, you do by way of trying to make the case for the fact that their job is a very complicated job. And uh, one police officer, who I admired a great deal, uh, sent back his form, and they were to put percentages alongside their different duties. And he said, uh, enforcing the law, 50%. Maintaining the peace, 50%. And that was it. <laughs> and that was significant uh, in that it was an understatement by the officers as to the complexity of what they're doing. Uh, and it confirms what a lot of the public says about thinks about policing. They enforce the law, which is oversimplifies so much of what policing uh, is all about. We know from a lot of the basic studies that have been made of a variety of natures, uh, nature over, over the years that police uh, uh, spend as much as 80% of their time doing things that are not related to enforcing the law. Um, and therein lies a lot of the complexity of, of policing. Um, it's, it consists of an incredible range of varied tasks and, 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 and meeting such a variety of, of expectations. And I have tried over the years to inventory some of these things and to prioritize them. Of course, you know, for me, the highest, most noble, most challenging function that police perform in a free society is uh, to protect individual rights, uh, to protect the right of uh, free speech, of protest, uh, uh, and that rises to the top, and it's a really noble goal, and, and one that sometimes doesn't even get mentioned in the characterization of maintaining the peace and enforcing uh, the law. Um, and, of course, they obviously spend a lot of time on the TV image of what policing is all about, the, the movie image of homicides and assaults and difficult-to-solve solve crimes. But when you dig into it, you find some fascinating sorts of things, and a very high percentage of policing consists, for example, of just dealing with conflicts, conflicts as we try to live together. You know, conflicts between husband and wife and conflicts between, uh, uh, between neighbor and neighbor and conflicts between uh, the, the, the cab driver and his, 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 his or her passenger. And, and uh, all, the whole range of conflicts. And if, if you did it on a percentage basis, you would refer to the police officer as the media. He, he or she is the one that goes out there and tries to, when we talk about maintaining the police, working through these conflicts that, that arrive. Uh, 
there's the whole phenomenon of the, the, the police being the ones that provide the care to individuals who can't care for themselves, um, whether it's the addicted or the the, the, the person under alcohol or, or, or the disabled or uh, whatever. Um, and uh, much of their time is, is, is devoted uh, to that. Uh, there's the... Uh, um, the whole responsibility that police have for dealing with fear and and helping to create a sense of, of, of security and responding to the anxieties and the concerns that arise in a community. And, uh, and there's an endless array of little things that police are called upon to do. Most of us, I think, would would be shocked if you've never seen the listing of calls that come into a police department. Uh, and that uh, uh, make these this endless array of requests that are coming in, essentially because when people are in trouble uh, and they don't know who to call, they often just call the police. And we have no way of characterizing that. That's not law enforcement. That's a misleading statement. It's policing, yes. Um, but um, And we've searched over the years for terms to what's the umbrella, what's the term that we apply to all this stuff. Um, a colleague of mine, a very dear colleague, spent months trying to do that, and his, his ultimate uh, uh, statement was that policing is something that ought not to be, it, what police do is something that ought not to be, ha to deal with something that ought not to be happening and about which someone had better do something now. You know, and that's, that's a fairly accurate description. But if you reflect on it, they're dealing with all the residual problems in, supply, in, in society that have sort of fallen through the cracks. The problems in which you know, others have given up and uh, often occurring uh, and presenting quite a challenge in their most aggravated form for which no solutions have been found. And that com combined, they they require the training, some of the training and the skills of psychologists, lawyers, social workers, mediators, uh, those trained in first aid, educators, etc., 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 etc. So, having set that on the table, I, I want to pose for you the question: of, You know, what what are the means by which police deal with all these things? This incredible variety of things and the again we we live on the basis of, of an image a bit of a myth rather than a reality uh, to a great extent police in order to get a lot of these things done uh, live off of uh, an image that they to a great extent uh, develop and and perpetuate which is that of appearing to be omnipotent. You name it, we'll, we can take care of it. And there's a lot in policing, in the culture of policing, that feeds that image. Uh, the uniform, the badge, the gun, the, the, the overall uh, image. And police like to feel competent, uh, uh, capable of responding to the wide range of problems that they have or have to deal with. Uh, and omnipotence becomes one of their most uh, valuable tools. But I'll, if, 
at the risk of uh, offending uh, uh, other than Mary uh, here, or there are other police officers here, uh, I'll let you in on a secret. And that is that much of policing is bluff. It's bluffing your way through uh, in the hopes that the person you're dealing with will adhere to whatever it is that they're trying to do to resolve the situation that they're uh, confronting. Uh, and when we get in, when we drill down, when we get into these given situations on careful analysis, we find that police are very limited, very limited in both their resources and very limited in their authority and what it is that they can bring to bear with regard to many of these tasks. Um, I, to shorten things, I'd play a game with you, but uh, we don't have time for that. Uh, to, to shorten things, let me tell you that uh, Madison is, uh, uh, has a population of roughly 250,000 people. It has 77 square miles in the city plus, and that's all the ground, not the water. Um, how many officers does it have on duty at any one time? Uh, during a, you know, on a Thursday at 10.30 at night or a Saturday at one, Sunday, 1 o'clock in the morning, etc. I don't have the exact figures here. I've computed them in the past, but so I can't be precise. But it's anywhere from 26, 25, sometimes less if you've got changes and shifts, uh, to 32, 33, roughly. Roughly about that. That may be high, Mary. You have reactions? No, I didn't hear your time frame. Hmm? I didn't hear your time frame. Oh, at any one time. You know. So the number of officers available is very small, the resources. And then when we get involved in all the studies we've done over these many years, in given any situation, their authority in, in, in to deal with some of these situations is very ambiguous, amorphous. We've seen situations in some of these uh, things that have gotten a great deal of publicity out of Baltimore and elsewhere of I saw one video of an officer at the scene saying, well, we got to do something. What do we do? Well, let's arrest him for X. Uh, it's this ambiguous dependence upon the law to deal with a lot of the stuff which does not call for law enforcement. And the fallback position in policing is to, to, to use arrest to use the criminal justice system, to pull in that piece that they might be in a position to call upon in order to deal with the situation in, when response is ambiguous or unclear as to what it is they ought to be doing. That's their fallback position. And so I told you I was going to just quickly drill down a little bit. And I've arrived at a point when I would want to assert to you as a hypothesis that when the police fall back to using the law and the arrest, they are invoking what is essentially an adversary proceeding. And temperatures rise, 
very, very quickly. And the potential arises for the need of force all the way up to, in the rare occasions, the potential for the use of deadly force. So the, one of the most essential and strongly supported themes that emerges in elevating the quality of policing is throughout all of the police function to develop alternatives to the use of law enforcement and to the criminal justice system and to reinforce the police culture through training and supervision in the use of alternatives, developing uh, what we hope are creative responses that are more effective than just depending ambiguous, you know, sort of in an ambiguous way upon the use of the criminal law. The bottom line is the most effective means for reducing the use of force in all of its forms is to create and make use of more effective uses uh, or responses, I should say, more effective responses to the multitude of problems that police are called upon to handle each day in, in their operations. Now, in making these generalizations, we're short on time here, so I'm not acknowledging all those traditional situations in which obviously the police go into them and the objective is enforce the law, take action, invoke the criminal justice system, etc. But I'm talking more broadly and more generally about what the police are trying to do. And um, that, that was the art of the cop in the old days. Uh, it's equally valid in describing you know, the, the cop on the beat, the image that we had. And it's, uh, it's uh, equally valid in describing the ideal police officer today. And uh, this is not original with me. If you go back to the, the Peel's principles of, of, of policing in 1829, he asserts the same thing in very, very, very clear uh, language. So here's, having set that forth and as, as my hypothesis, uh, the good news. The good news is that back in the 1970s, the Madison Police Department um, was among the leaders in establishing new and creative responses to common problems the police were confronting. You know, we used to lock up people that attempted to commit suicide and charge them with attempting to commit suicide. That occurred while I was in, already in Madison in the 19. Uh, 60s. Uh, we uh, established then uh, uh, arrangements with Dane County Mental Health. We created uh, crisis intervention units that were out there in the field working with police officers and responding to calls and brought a sophisticated approach to dealing with mental health problems as far back as the 1970s. We used to arrest all inebriated people. And in, in the 1970s, the Madison Police Department was one of the leaders in the country in creating detox facilities. And we took a large percentage of the arrestees out of the criminal justice system and dealt with them through detox, first through Davis House, then through Rebus House, and ultimately to Lurian and the current detox. We used to arrest and incarcerate runaway kids. We held them in the women's section of the jail. And then we created Briar Patch as an alternative. Um, 
we did very little for the victims of sexual assault until we created rape crisis intervention. And so the Madison Department and the community organizations that supported them did a lot to develop alternatives to the criminal justice system by way of dealing with these things. And today we've had, you know, to skip forward, fast forward, you know, the, the most recent effort to intensify the, the, and, and develop a, an organized response to mental illness is part of that pattern, a renewal of what had been started way back in the 1970s. Dane County's current effort to deal more aggressively and adequately with homelessness is an effort to take the burden off of the criminal justice system. Um, and th th that effort has been greatly advanced and much of the work that I've been involved in the past 30 years has, through problem-oriented policing, has tried to spread this concept through the state, the nation, and abroad in getting police departments by analyzing problems to develop new and creative responses that take the burden off of the criminal justice system, which has this aspect to it that creates the potential for things going bad. Uh, I'm not going to go into that in detail, but um, uh, let me just observe here that that kind of a commitment, however, while we, we have the know-how, we have the experience, we have thousands of cases that have been documented, a police department is using their creativity and their innovation to create such alternatives that it, we vacillate in our commitment to it. So through a national policy of dealing with drugs, it often pre preempts a lot of police resources, or a local police department through pressure, responding to pressures in the communities, you know, let's get down to doing real police work, takes police departments away from those creative responses. And, uh, and so the, the effort va vacillates. We've had departments that were committed to these things and then abandoned them and then came back to them, and uh, that's been the pattern over the past uh, 30 or 40 uh, years. So uh, by way of summarizing, uh, let me say that it requires constant analysis, constant reinvigoration, uh, and constant rearticulation of what it is that we're doing and how we want to doing, do it. And recently we've had a, a, a new injection of enthusiasm for this. The response to that god-awful program of broken windows, which resulted in large numbers of petty offenders being brought into the criminal justice system in large cities, has been in L.A. and New York City within the past months. Uh, that's being abandoned, and they are using alternatives as a vehicle for dealing things which take it out of the criminal justice system. Uh, we are seeing police happily reasserting themselves. The police field has enormous capacity, like old Merrill Finch, you know, we talk, you listen. If the police do speak out, people will listen and will follow their lead. And so one of the best examples we've had over the past few weeks is when a national group of police chiefs, including our own chief here, have signed on to the, the uh, imperative, the, the importance of responding in a, in a sophisticated way to migrants in the community rather than succumb to the national pressure to deal with them in a different way. Uh, that's encouraging. Uh, and uh, and 
under the auspices of problem oriented policing, there are a lot of new initiatives that have been established. So, for example, in addition to the hundreds that are already documented on file and, uh, and available uh, by reference for to police chief, uh, police people, um, the pop. Uh, the, the problem with policing efforts are now addressing in a more systematic way domestic violence by getting involved early on in identifying the most aggravated cases in the community and responding to them with a coordinated effort of other agencies uh, to try to reduce the, the, the tension in that relationship so that it doesn't result in what is one of the most common sources of uh, escalation and, and serious offenses. Uh, another n novel thing is finally, 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 police are zeroing in on the big box stores, which create large numbers of individuals that they feed into the criminal justice system, and where once they come in for a minor offense, initially identified by somebody outside the system, namely store detectives, uh, they suffer the unemployment and the other things that, that uh, contribute to criminal records and to a problem of over-incarceration. And so uh, police are going in there and studying what's happening in these big box stores and seeing what they can do in the way of prevention and other measures that will reduce the need for the use of automatic pick this shoplifter up and chauffeur him into the, the, the criminal justice system. So my conclusion, uh, I think it's imperative that we, we invest more heavily in enabling the police to avoid the need for adversary relationships, uh, which increase the need, the potential need for, for using force. And in, that, in doing that, we've got to work with the community and getting them to understand this so they don't pressure the police into doing other things that take them away from this. Uh, for the police to consider this and allocating their personnel, training them, and developing their culture. For the police to mine their own data, and they have tremendous expertise and creativity to take the initiative and to speak out for some of these things. To encourage individual officers to, to and provide them with the time to get involved, and, and uh, they can be the biggest resource in our moving more aggressively in this direction, uh, and to reward them in the form of status, prestige, and their own self-satisfaction so that they view themselves as contributing more to the system, and to turn to the community wherever we can, whether it's the business community, the schools, all the other institutions, to do their part to support lesser dependence on the criminal justice system and more on creative responses to these behavioral problems that fall to the police to handle. Thank you. Thank you. So what I'd like to do is to hold up on questions of Herman until Cecilia has had an opportunity to speak and then we can ask questions of, of both. Thank you very much. Um, so my goal in being here today was mostly to just get Herman here so you could hear him because he's the one who knows everything. Um, so I, I'm delighted that he gave you an overview, and I'm just going to add a few short comments um, on the more specific topic that I think is often on people's minds these days, which is the topic of excessive force. And what I want to do is throw out a 
a couple of framing points. One is to just talk very briefly about how we think about the role of law in guiding the use of excessive force or governing or restricting excessive force by police officers. And then to think more broadly about what are the causes of the use of excessive force and then how might we reduce it um, by changes in line and policy. And I'm going to just to foreshadow, I, I think policy is a way better way um, to change practice than, than is law most often. So how many of you are parents or teachers? Either one, okay. Most people, and all of you at one point were kids. So I always come at it from that perspective, partly because I have like a trillion children, and so I'm thinking about this all the time. By a trillion, I really mean ten. Um, but also because it's a way that we all constantly are thinking about exerting control um, and engaging in human behavioral change, which is a primary uh, duty of law enforcement or police officers, right? We call on them to engage with people who are doing things we don't want them to do. And most of us have some life experience of either being the one governed or governing somebody else. And for many of us, that experience is one that we don't always get right at the beginning. Um, sometimes you come in too heavy-handed and you find out it's not working the way you thought it would. And sometimes, um, for those of you who have more than one child in your life or had siblings and can think about your own personalities and temperaments, you learn that uh, a way that you might engage with one person to get a good result doesn't work with somebody else. In fact, um, sometimes a heavy-handed approach with some people gets them in line right away, and with other people it tends to make them escalate and become more combative. We're asking police to engage with people, and let's face it, grown-ups are just really big kids, right? We're, we're the same people. We're a little more mature, but we still have temperaments that differ from one another, and our reactions to authority are different based a lot on our life experiences. And police are coming in in a very difficult and vulnerable moment, right? Whenever police are called, something has gone wrong and something needs to be done about it. But they don't have a pre-existing relationship with the people uh, with whom they're going to interact. So they don't know what the right approach is with most individuals. And they're never sure if what they say or how they behave is going to result in compliance or in escalation. They're coming in blind in many instances and again, in situations that sometimes carry pretty clear attendant dangers. Um, police are also regular people and are vulnerable to the same anxieties and fears and concerns that any of us would be, and they work in a higher-risk profession. Consequently, police are not only dealing with the psychology of the people that they confront, but they're dealing with their own. And we know that in many instances in which excessive force is used, it's not always because the officer wanted to be cruel or use more force than necessary. In fact, most of the time what's happening, um, and studies seem to support this, is that we often have officers who are highly anxious, and anxious people tend to be more volatile and to react much more quickly in a situation, often in reactive ways that may not um, be the best in retrospect. So we have a lot of personality interacting with people's histories that are unknown to police. And it's very easy to see why any police citizen interaction, especially one 
in which force is going to be exerted is a moment of risk for both the person against whom force is directed and for the officer, him or herself, in that situation. Now, what does law have to say about this? Well, um, I'm going to assume you, you may already have this background, so I apologize if I'm repeating the obvious. But the basic rules under the United... We think about... There are different kinds of laws, right? Usually people in this context think about constitutional law and the right of an individual um, being arrested in particular to be free of excessive force. That particular right arises under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. If the person is already uh, a pretrial detainee, then we say it's a due process right, and if they're imprisoned, we say it's a right that arises under the Eighth Amendment. But the idea is a law enforcement, whether it's corrections, um, jail officials, um, prison officials, or police officers, are limited in the amount of force they can use. And those limitations vary depending on the kind of conduct the officer is engaged in. So in a typical arrest situation, the police officer has the right to ensure that an individual complies with lawful commands. And you, the officer gets to use force to make that happen to the degree necessary to ensure compliance, as long as that behavior, we would say, is objectively reasonable. And that objective reasonableness we view by looking at the situation as the officer would have seen it at the time. Right? When you come into situations, you're usually coming in with very limited information. Frequently, uh, someone has called for service. You're getting information relayed to you secondhand from dispatch, sometimes even more removed than that, depending on who's placing the call. Sometimes officers are responding to something they see in progress, but rarely do they have full information about the context in which they're acting. Consequently, the way we view situations retrospectively is often very, very different from the way the officer views it at that moment as he or she confronts the situation. Uh, when it comes to the use of lethal force, uh, we have a slightly higher standard, well, much higher standard, I guess, um, which is that you can still use force to ensure lawful compliance, but only you can only resort to lethal force to the degree that the person who is fleeing law enforcement um, is in that context or who is attacking law enforcement is presenting a serious risk of danger to the of, of deadly, of death or great bodily harm to the person uh, persons around him or her or to the law enforcement officer, him or herself, which makes sense. And realize that the basis of that rule is that we know officers are working with imperfect information. We don't want them to get hurt. They're trying to help us. We want to offer them some protection. And we also know that their authority is a lot of bluff, but also we want them to have some ability to take people into custody, usually against those people's will, when, when that is warranted. Okay, so that's the constitutional protection, but that's not the end of the story because there's a lot more than the Constitution that governs people's behavior. Constitutional cases, um, when a constitutional right is violated, then you can have a civil rights case. That's how that usually would get litigated. It's also possible that when a police officer well oversteps reasonable boundaries and harms a person, without a legitimate law enforcement purpose, right, or excessively, that that officer could incur criminal liability for battery, for homicide, for violating the criminal law, just like any of us could, 
if we're not acting in self-defense with our use of force or reasonably using the legal powers that a law enforcement officer has been given. And then beyond that kind of liability under the criminal statutes and the constitutional law, we're often talking about um, what in many cases is actually one of the most influential uh, legal restrictions, and that's a violation of um, policy of your office, which can have consequences um, that affect your employment. And for most of us, retaining employment is a pretty critical goal that motivates a lot of the work that we do. Most of us don't want to lose our jobs. We like them, hopefully, uh, but whether we like them or not, they also will pay our bills and allow us to live our life. Very rarely are we going around all day saying, oh, I hope I don't violate the criminal law because then I'm going to get locked up and put in prison. That's not what motivates us. But we do sometimes say, I better get out of bed and go to work because, yeah, I need to pay my bills, right? Um, employment policies are a form of regulation that changes people's behavior. Those are all different areas of, of legal restraint and guidance that are offered. Uh, often when I hear public discourse around uh, the use of force, people say they want to, they want the constitutional law to change. They want the standards to be higher. And when I say why, they say, well, because I don't like what happened in this case, and I don't like that it didn't violate the Constitution because I feel like people are using excessive force and not being held accountable. You say, okay, well, those are different things, right? If your concern is that people are using excessive force, if your concern is that there's a lack of accountability for that, the natural answer is not necessarily that the problem lies with the United States Constitution. The problem could lie in all sorts of other places and be remedied in other places. So it, the one most important thing that I have it on my phone, I wasn't ignoring you by bringing my phone up here, I promise. Um, I want to make sure I get the title right, assuming I can unlock it. Oh, come on. If I can tell you to read one thing, if you haven't already, and you may well have done this um, in the context of your work, um, but the Police Executive Research Forum last year put out a white paper called Guiding Principles on the Use of Force. Um, that paper is worth reading carefully in its entirety. It comes out of a series of meetings that were held and convened by PERF with, oh, thank you, PROP should have known Herman would have it on hand. This, see, it's not even that long, I promise. And I bet there's big, yeah, see pictures, big font. I promise it's not that intimidating. Um, lots of little blurbs you can just skim if you want. Uh, this is an incredibly important document for any jurisdiction that's looking to improve practices around the use of force. Because what it does is reviews the state of the law but then also talks about the ways in which we can actually get change on the ground. And it talks about the importance of police policies in creating change. And policy is not just written rules that people are expected to study or skim, but actual changes in practice. The amount of time, they have a great survey with some graphics in here you should definitely check out, that shows um, the amount of time that's spent on training officers for various tasks in the course of their, their basic training. And what you find is the amount of time spent on firearms training is, like, I don't remember what the actual multiple is, but hugely greater than the amount of time spent on verbal communication skills 
and training on mental health problems that you are likely to encounter in the field and how you de-escalate a person who's elevated or in crisis. How do you identify a person who may need to be approached in a different way in order to reduce the risk of harm to the officer and to others around and to the individual suspect, him or herself, in that context? Herman made the very important point that a minuscule portion of any officer's job actually involves the use or discharge of a firearm. That's good. That's how we want it to be. Now, yes, officers need to know how to use uh, various tools at their disposal, but the biggest tool that they use every single day is their mouth, right, and their brains, and their ability to communicate with multicultural populations with all sorts of various identifiable special needs, um, with children, with the elderly, um, with immigrant communities, with all sorts of people, in, with college students. <laughs> They're their own special population, I promise. Um, having those tools, learning about de-escalation techniques in particular, is a skill that police officers need to do their work well. And it's not something that everyone comes in knowing already. Right? Uh, to go back to the parenting analogy, uh, it takes a lot of us a long time to learn skills with the people we live with and work with every single day. To be able to engage meaningfully and helpfully with strangers requires a different skill set. And it's not always one that we provide to officers, despite the incredible need they have for those sorts of skills and tools. This guide also provides examples of some model jurisdictions in the U.S. and abroad that have tried to approach police training and police policy around the use of force in different ways. And so, again, for our limited time, I'm going to stop and allow you to ask us, and especially him, as many questions as you have. But I really do commend this to you because I think it's a really accessible document that provides a lot of information in a really compact format that I hope will be helpful to you. So thank you. Questions? It's an average number of calls that would come in. And how many of those would be mental health versus something else? I don't know if the analysis of that recently. I and my I'm very foggy in my recollection of the numerous such analyses that I've seen over the years. Mary, do you have? I can just chime in on that. So it varies dramatically by shift, time of day. There are temporal factors that influence it. But, um, and, and it depends on the area the officer's assigned and works. So there are some areas where there are higher concentrations where an officer may see crimes or issues related to mental health issues. But then there are other areas where um, there may be more of an enforcement action because of the, the area that's served. Uh, it's not unusual. The, the call volume varies. I could get it by officer, but that's a little misleading because it does vary so much. Our slowest times tend to be the very early morning hours from like 4 to 7. Then the normal day, it starts to pick up and it gets busy. There's a lot of traffic and other issues like that and a lot of the normal business day stuff that you would expect. 
Uh, and as soon as that kind of activity starts, that's you see a lot of we'll have contacts depending on the nature. You, you specifically mentioned mental health, so I'll, I'll make sure I hit those. But those crop up at all times, so those can pop in anywhere. Um, and now with the, the current way that we, you know, when dealing with the mental health concerns, dealing with the issues with Winnebago, they're actually very time-consuming as well. Um, because just getting people the services they need means transporting them out of town and, and hiking them away. So um, as far as giving you a specific number of calls for service, how many are mental health, we could break that down. We could do that analysis on a yearly basis or even a daily basis and even tell you where most of those cases happen um, to the extent that they're coded. Um, but you'll see those scattered throughout the day. The biggest peak in calls for service or call volume for us there's a little peak in the morning. It'll plane out a little bit, and then it climbs until pretty steadily until 8 o'clock at night, and then it will again drop off. And when it's we are at our peak, it's call to call to call to call for officers. Um, there, there's not a lot of downtime, although, you know, in, in depending, again, on all the other things, area served, et cetera. I, that kind of gives you a snapshot. There are a lot of, that's just, it's not a simple answer. I think we're really fortunate in Madison to have a police department that collects data on these issues. I mean, I think it's important, and, and PERF makes this point, that across the criminal justice system, there's exceedingly poor collection of data on many of these questions. And we are really fortunate to have a department that for a long time has valued understanding the dynamics of what's happening. Um, so we're able to access this information. And then I would only add, when we think about mental health, and again, because it takes so many resources to respond to mental health calls, um, we tend to code that pretty narrowly, right? As people with severe, you know, um, severe mental health issues that often cause them to lose touch with reality or your, your most severe cases. But it's also important as we increasingly understand the role of trauma in people's lives and the way it affects their relationship, particularly to shows of authority, to remember that most people who come into the criminal justice system, certainly by the time, let's say, you know, I tend to study people who've been sentenced. So when you're talking about people in prison, you're looking at 95 plus percent of women and probably 75 to 80 percent of men. Um, who have trauma histories. And what that does often is complicate the way they respond to shows of force by authority figures. So even if you don't have someone who's suffering from a severe mental health problem, often the way you would want to approach them in order to minimize risk to officer and to suspect um, is going to be slightly different from the way you would approach someone without that kind of history. I, I just wanted to inject here uh, by way of, again, informing the committee with regards to some of the, the complexities of policing is that it's easy to get sucked into viewing policing as responding to incidents uh, as we've been just talking about them. Um, but um, that, that is one of the uh, the, the pitfalls of, of policing is just responding to incidents and incidents and incidents and incidents. And what we've been trying to do, and Cecilia has made reference to that, is the making available the use of the data that are collected in police departments 
to figure out, for example, that we've been to the same home 300 times in the past year for the same incident, same type of incident. And so we have to have the capacity to take leave of just responding to the incidents and analyze our workload and say, wait a minute, and that should pop up on the computer, that we've got to address what is happening in that home and what is giving rise to the need for the police so that we can solve the problem rather than just resign ourselves to responding to it over and over and over again. And I could tell you endless stories that we've chronicled of police responding over 500, 600 times to the same incident that another police officer who might be filling in for an officer on vacation says, what are we doing here? And he digs, he takes some time and digs in and discovers that the answer to solving the problem was so elementary and puts an end to that, which is high quality policing. I have on Herman, you, um, talking about your experience in Chicago and many other departments that you have worked with, what are the biggest mistakes that police departments or police leadership make uh, that get in the way of implementing progressive practices and being able to better work with the community? Kind of a broad question, but... Well, I, I was trying to, ref to identify one of those earlier, and that is to, to feel that they – police give an outward image of, of being – a lot of people who are subject to, to them say they're pretty tough. You know, they're, they're strong and they're, they're powerful and all. But the reality is that in their administration, police tend to be rather weak. They respond to the pressures that are exerted upon them. And I think that what the biggest mistake is that police agencies do not reflect and analyze and think about what it is that they are doing and try to be more effective in what they are doing. And to speak out to the community, to say, to tell them hey, this is a social problem that has arisen in our community, and we have analyzed it, and there's a solution to this, and we want your help in instituting that solution. So, if I just take an example, I referred earlier to the big box stores. If we have fall, I don't, I'm, I'm not talking about Madison because I'm not familiar with their current practice, but in uh, two cases I've recently been exposed to in Glendale, California, and Arlington, Texas. They sat down and they said, what are we doing here? We're just getting a call, the incident, to go to Store X. And what has happened at Store X? The private security person that the store hires has arrested somebody who has stopped somebody within their authority for shoplifting. And they want them taken into the criminal justice system. And Arlington found that their arrests had skyrocketed by virtue of the discretion exercised by their store detectives 
in feeding people into the criminal justice system. And the police were just serving as chauffeurs. And very often these were individuals of color, young people. And now, on the other hand, we know other police agencies that have said, we're not going to do that. We know enough from the, all the research this has done about the problem of shoplifting that there are X number of ways in which you can reduce shoplifting in large stores. And we want you, Mr. Manager, <laughs> to implement some of those steps so that we stop this practice of just serving as the vehicle for bringing these people into the criminal justice system. And uh, that has worked, and it's worked uh, very effectively. So in response to your question, Luis, I would criticize police for not, for getting into a rut too often and responding in traditional ways. And, and the, the point of what I was saying before is there have been times uh, that, I'm, I'm, I, that when I was very intimately from, involved in the Madison Police Department where they took the initiative in educating the community that this was a more progressive way in which to respond to the aid problem and got support for that. And, um, and I think we should be doing more ana analysis. There are some police officers in, Ma in Madison that should be have medals hung all over them for, for having come up with creative responses to problems that were previously um, not handled well and produced potential for use of force and large numbers of arrests. Our Halloween demonstration is an example of that. The Madison Police Department converted what used to be an annual riot with large number of arrests for Halloween into a musical event that is now conducted with minimum number of arrests. Now, the average Madison police officer might say it still requires a hell of a lot of energy and effort to stage that and anxiety, but we're not marching X hundred people into the criminal justice system. And um, we have some other officers from Madison who have done miraculous work in, in uh, rescuing parks from uh, situations in which they, people didn't go into them out of fear. And they went in and made environmental changes. They uh, uh, made changes in traffic patterns. They uh, reduced the amount of brush so that people could not hide in the brush. Uh, and they went into the community and sold the community on how they should be using their park. And so they got the natural surveillance of people now using the park, which is an important factor, a way of reducing the amount of crime. And uh, it worked. So those are, those are examples. And I, and I commend the people who have done it. The, 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 the downside is that we do these things, and then the pressures build up, and they say, we want more people on traffic control. We want more people serving warrants. We want more people doing some of the traditional things that are not very productive. And uh, that draws away from these, these efforts. I think Herman made a, a really important point, which is when he said there are officers who should be given medals for what they've done. Uh, a number of years back, I did an informal survey of police departments that had won a national award named after our very own Herman Goldstein. 
um, presented um, by the um, Federal Center for Problem-Oriented Policing. And these were officers who had been involved in really amazing interventions. And I went and I looked back for agencies that had won the award about 15 years ago and then called those departments and tried to reach out to some of the contact people who had filed the original um, award application to see what those departments were doing today. Was problem-oriented policing still something that mattered to them? Were they engaged in it? And what I found, and again, it was a small sample size, but still it really struck me, was that the places that were still actively engaged in problem-oriented policing and preventing crime were the places where those officers who'd been line-level people when they filed the application 15 years ago were now promoted and were leaders in their departments. And the places that said, oh, that was just a fad from the 80s and had moved on to other things like military surveillance and, and really aggressive forms of policing, they were the places where those line-level people were gone or were still line-level officers. Promotion and recognition matters, and if all we measure and reward and recognize are arrests and other easily quantifiable actions by police officers, then that's what will be incentivized. And if we reward people who are creative problem solvers engaged with their communities and those are the people we promote, that's the culture we get. law invoking response uh, uh, way of dealing, doing policing and, and I, but I, I'm, I hope I'm not going to make you uncomfortable if I'd like to try to bring it down to the Madison level a little bit if I can and the way one way I thought to do this would be I think it was at the last meeting we had the presentation from officers in a community policing program here in Madison the court team, the court team which is um, I don't know if you're familiar with it here but it's a it's a it's a small unit of three officers um, I think so what's that Oxlade, they had more. Okay. And they're doing some really outside-the-box kinds of things, going out in the community, you know, dealing with kids on various levels, building relationships, building bridges. And I was, I was, I was actually struck by three things, and I wonder if you could – I just want to lay those things out there and just invite you to respond, if you would, to that in, in terms of – and sort of a, a apply the framework that you're discussing to help us understand how we might understand a program like that. The three things that struck me were, one, number one, it sounded like a really exciting, you know, creative, proactive way of doing things that does not invoke the criminal justice system. The second thing, though, was it was a really small unit, right, within this law de police department. And the third was that it was really different. I mean, it wasn't – it was really distinct. It was like there was this unit, and then there was the rest of policing. And so it just made me wonder, are there ways to sort of, you know, break down that divide so that becomes uh, more the norm rather than a, a tiny little unit within a big police department? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And we have lots and lots of knowledge about that dilemma. Um, we've developed this term called community policing. And community policing means so many different things to so many different members of the public and police officers. The history is a long one. 
back in the 1930s, for example, the, no, it's now a century old. The, the PBA in New York City is a century, a century old. A uh, hundred years ago, they uh, came up with the idea of creating basketball leagues for kids in, uh, in certain areas of the community. And the police played basketball with them a hundred years ago. And um, so some of these efforts, I mean, athletic involvement, bringing police officers and, and, and kids together is great. It's wonderful. But it has to be integrated into other kinds of things that are going on in the agency. And it has to be spread throughout the agency. Otherwise, the results are very limited. I will, in my days in the Chicago Police Department, we thought we were being very creative, and we sent police officers uh, into schools to um, uh, officer-friendly programs, they were called. The officer, the officer was, uh, he was called officer-friendly, and he'd go into the, the elementary schools. And I remember this one officer-friendly came into my office, and he says, and he told me that it's not working. And he, he, and he explained the situation. And this little anecdote illustrates a lot of things. He said there was this little, this uh, uh, eight-year-old African kid, African-American kid, um, who was in the class. And the officer was, came in uniform, and the tradition was that the officer would let the would have the child uh, touch the uniform and ask for what pieces of equipment were and all that stuff. And so the little kid said to the, to the, to the officer, that stick you have hanging from your, your belt, what, what is that? And the officer says, that's a baton. And he says, oh, and he says, that's what you use to hit people over the head with. And the officer says, no, 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 no. He says, that's what we use in parades when we put on our white gloves and we push the people back onto the curb uh, so that they don't go into, onto the street. And the kid looks up at him and says, oh, and then if they don't go back on the curb, that's when you hit them on the head. <laughs> And that it indicates the, the level of distrust that exists in some communities. And so we can't deal with these programs in isolation. We have to integrate them. And uh, I, so I've told a horror story. I'll tell you a success story here in Madison. In the 19... Um, late 1980s and the 1990s, we had some extraordinary neighborhood policing units in the city that where the officers were embedded in the community. They, they didn't live there, but they were there all the time. They were known, and they, and they developed a sense of ownership in Viracourt, Broadway Simpson, a few other neighborhoods. And these were communities where the officers were so embedded that they developed, they transferred ownership for public safety to some of the people living in the communities. And, and, and a, a leadership emerged 
and I, I would I'd go to some of their picnics, and it was amazing to see what had happened. And there, well, there was this one occasion, Broadway Simpson, when they, they were having a, a, a potluck din, a picnic in honor of the officer who was their officer. They owned him, actually. And uh, when they were having this picnic, in the course of the picnic, some kids came up to him and said, Officer, officer, there are some kids over there fighting. And the woman who was the community leader at this point, she had emerged as the owner of safety in the, in the neighborhood. She said, Officer, you sit down. I'll go take care of it. Uh, it, it had, the, the ownership had transferred. And that's what I'm pointing out here is the difference between superficial efforts, efforts assigned to this unit over here while the other units continue to operate as they do, or without an awareness of what the others are achieving, versus the, the intensive efforts that are made to integrate all this stuff so that a, uh, a message gets through that is sincere, that has integrity to it, and that uh, communicates what we want to communicate, which is that we're the police, we serve the community, the community is the police, they serve us, you know, and we, we are in this together. Thank you. Any other questions? Mario? So my question is about training. So after uh, listening to you about all of these uh, creative practices that can help uh, the community and police relationships, like, what kind of practices will you uh, suggest that, like, MPD might need here in Madison in order to, to do that? Herman, do you want to start? Or you? Okay. Yeah, but fill in for me. Um, so I think, first of all, again, we're at a real advantage because MPD actually owns its own training, right? We're not beholden to some outside agency that's going to limit the kinds of, of changes or additions that we can give our officers. And I think our officers here in Madison already do a lot of the things we're talking about. I think one of the questions would be what is the rest, the allocation, the amount of time spent on everything that's covered? And then the other piece, um, because I don't want to say prejudge or suggest it's wrong. I just don't know the answer here locally. Um, but I think the other question is continuing education, right, because we train people and we send them forth and then they get legal updates as the law changes. Are we doing continual retraining and reconnection? Um, the fact is that there's a lot of focus and attention on, on these relevant questions about how you exercise force and authority, how you connect to the community, what are the effects of compounded disadvantage advantages on neighborhoods and how do we connect people to social services. I mean, all of these are areas where people are actively researching and writing, and there's information that's developing. Um, I know Madison Police already trained on things like implicit bias. There's a lot of really exciting research coming out on the effects of stereotype threat on the use of force and ways that you can combat um, sort of 
police reactiveness when they're nervous about being stereotyped um, in order to reduce excessive force. Uh, there's a lot of really exciting information coming out all the time. And so one of the things that I think you want to do is not just think about training an officer and setting them loose, but how much continuing education is there? How much do we set aside their time and protect their time to allow them to engage in those kinds of continuing educational activities? How much do we resource our our officers in our department to allow officers to go out and connect with officers in other jurisdictions to get new ideas, to share the things that we do well here with other agencies across the country, and then to bring back new ideas as well. Those things take resources. We have to be willing to fund our officers to go learn, whether it's at home or elsewhere, um, and to to say that that is a priority, that's a good use of your time, uh, because if all we do is complain that you're not responding to calls fast enough um, or complain that we don't like the way you're doing things, we're not going to give you new tools to do it differently, then I think it's on us, any problems that we have. Herman, do you want to add? Uh, the challenge is enormous, and it's something that we expect of, I mean, my ideal that I expect of the police is something that, we don't achieve in a lot of high-level professions, you know, whether whatever that profession might be. And that is, I think the goal has to be to instill in the officers, officers, um, and I'll, I'll use a fancy word, but uh, you know, an ethos, a, a, a commitment, and, and a, a, a being wedded to a principle. Uh, that of a high respect for um, the way in which they use their authority and to trying to achieve their goals without the necessity of extending to their outer limits of their authority. Um, so in, in, in teaching the use of force, you know, it's not enough to say the statutes authorize us to use force up to this point. That doesn't do it for me. The goal ought to be to teach the officers how to get the job done with the minimum of use of force, what is necessary, and off in the background, leave it to the lawyers to decide whether or not, you know, what you ultimately did is within the statutes, within what the courts have said. But the police, and there are some chiefs who have been superb in this current environment, in this current milieu, in expressing that, to say that I don't want my officers to go to the outer limits. It's not all that essential that they understand you know, the outer limits. I want them only to go as far as they need to go and to try to teach them to minimize and to, to use force to the degree that it's necessary rather than that it is legal. And that's why, you know, if I was standing in a, a, a law school classroom, I'd say that this is one of those big discretionary areas um, that uh, Cecilia and I have studied and written about a great deal. And that is if you see these as parentheses, the, the outer parentheses is what the, the statutes allow. And then, the, and then smaller parentheses is what the courts you know, allow. And then within that, you, you're looking to administration, 
and I hold, I stand in awe of the job of a police chief as a policymaker in his his or her agency. Uh, and what what that person, in, with support of their community, want to allow, and then so to so as to narrow that, and and hope that you get the officers on a wavelength that is much narrower than the outside than the outside limits. Let me say this. So, in, in the interest of time, being respectful of of, um, of ORAR's presentation, I'd like to take one more question, and then we are going to to move on, uh, so we can uh, try and stay on time within reason. Matthew, you can make me choose that questions. Okay. Uh, I'm sure they're related. Sort of. Sort of. Well, not really. Um, in, in in an abstract sense, I suppose. I, I think really the first and one that might actually be a little bit easier is um, thinking about policies. And, um, you know, as you're saying, you know, you want to, it's not necessarily always the law, you want to change policies. And, and to some extent, I, I, I do agree there. Um, but then in, in looking at kind of a generalized culture of law enforcement and this idea of closing ranks, um, you know, Wisconsin's been part of it, particularly when it comes to use of force. Um, and internal investigations and lack of transparency, um, and and then even then not knowing you know why decisions were made, how were they made, when you know it, the public might view something as far as you know violation of policy and just a seeming um, and at times you know it, you can pick that on this um, unwillingness to actually enforce policies or uh, reprimand an officer uh, for, for breaking policies um, that, you know, it, that has an impact on, on, on people. And, and we see that uh, where there might be somebody that still on the street that um, maybe shouldn't be, um, even though a policy might be there um, on that. So kind of what might be limits, really, I, I guess, of that or ways uh, to change internal cultures so that there can be uh, accountability held, um, even if it's outside of just general legal spectrums, but within policies. That's a tough one. When I was working closely with the Madison Police Department, uh, there was one occasion in which uh, Dave Cooper and I uh, had a celebration. Uh, two officers uh, were bringing a prisoner into the jail. And uh, as you may or may not know, when you take a prisoner to the jail in Madison, you bring him in through the basement and go up in the elevator. And uh, elevators, by the way, if the, the, for people such as myself who have had to deal with extensive number of cases of, of alleged police abuse, elevators are unfortunately... Uh, locales for uh, wrongdoing because there's privacy between floors. And uh, this one officer, and, and going back to one of Cecilia's points, you know, policing can get very hot and tough sometimes. I don't know that I could do it, you know, when, when they're dealing with an individual who is very, very difficult to deal with. And so the tension of one of the, the officers accompanying this uh, inmate, this person who had been arrested, 
um, he lost it. And he used physical force in the elevator uh, on, on the arrestee. And when the elevator got to the top floor, the other officer went out and called internal investigation and said, I just witnessed one of our fellow officers uh, unnecessarily using force. Now, that, that's, that's extraordinary because you understand all the dynamics of this. Dependent upon each other in an emergency, we don't, we don't succeed getting beyond this level in many, many occupations in the medical field, you know, for a doctor to, to complain about another doctor. So it's a common phenomenon, and that's what, that's what we're struggling with in policing. And what we're trying to do is develop a culture, not in which necessarily they're reporting, but just the presence of the other officer will serve as a curtailment, a limitation on what the other officer is doing. So it all gets back to this business of developing that culture in the organizations. We don't do that. You know, I, one little anecdote, you know, we, we've always had comparisons with the British police. And I, I was sitting in a pub with three officers in, in London, and I said, tell me, how is it that you have so little of this stuff occurring here? compared to what our experience in the states. Uh, and we have 18,000 police departments, so it's spread, you know, and we have the best and we have the worst and we have what is unthinkable in some departments and what is common in other departments. But these three officers sitting around in the pub, I said, okay, you're in the city of London and you're in a dock alley, it, the area is abandoned, and you're dealing with this tough person, and you're losing your cool, and he's, you've, he's down the alley, and he's resisting. How can it be that the person isn't dealt with roughly? And I, I was floored. The, the officer said, it'd be an embarrassment to the queen. What do you mean about that? What do you mean about that? They had embodied this ethos in, in their officers that said, we just don't do those things here, even under the most private and, you know, and conditions. So now that's, that's, you know, hoping and praying for, you know, a different world. But we have to work doubly hard in police departments to, to develop uh, a culture in which the officers recognize what's at stake. They see themselves as having a noble objective uh, that even the most despicable of individuals has constitutional rights and, uh, and is to be guaranteed those. And uh, that's a hard lesson to teach and to implement. But that's what we have to do, and that's the challenge. And you can't abandon that challenge. You have to work to achieve it to the greatest extent possible. I would just like to, to just interject one thing and one point to everybody here. Um, to me, that sounds like we need to put, because I think that it's an honor to be able to wear a badge, and I don't care what city or state you're in or a part of. 
So to me, that puts a, a really a detailed, focused emphasis on the practices of hiring. And, and when I think about the practices of hiring, I think about the people that we're about to hire to serve and protect. I think about making sure that they understand what our vision is, right. making sure that they understand what our philosophy is, making sure that they understand and will embrace the mission of what this policing thing is all about altogether. And I'm not so sure that everybody, you know, understands and, and operates under that fashion. But I'm just saying that I think that that will put more emphasis up front when you're hiring a police officer. So I don't know if that, that means to add more training initially. I don't know if that means to test them in scenarios or put them in scenarios where they must um, show you, uh, you know, uh, what, they, what they understand the position to be. I don't know. But I do understand that if they're going to wear the badge of honor, then all of these things that we're talking about should initially be covered up front as well. We need to be sure that once we swear you in and put that badge on your chest or your shoulder, wherever you're going to put it, you know, that you understand the expectations and everything that falls within the parameters of saying that you're going to serve and protect this community or that community. Yes, and I, I can't, I've devoted much of my career to try to reinforcing that, that the importance and, and the commitment of the individual officer on the street. When I talk to individual officers, I talk to them about the awesome nature of their job and how so much is expected of them beyond what is expected of people in, in other areas. And I think we have to have, as we have succeeded in, in varying degrees, you know, I don't, I don't, measure it periodically in the Madison Department and trying to give greater dignity and respect to the individual officer. One, one of the things we have to do is recognize that these individuals are not automatons, but they are individuals who are highly educated in the Madison Department and who, given uh, responsibilities, I think can, in, can exercise their independence and uh, to a greater extent than they can in other departments. And that's why I urge that we utilize their brain and their creativity and their innovative capacities in coming up with and having a management style that, it, that rewards their contribution to intelligent, effective policing. And to the extent that we can increase the status of the individual officer and the respect that we pay for them and provide rewards to them, that are equivalent to what in the past we just limited to heroism and, and dealing with, you know, danger, uh, then, uh, then we, we use all these measures to reinforce that. So my next question is, is bear with me kind of the wording. It's a, it's a tough one. Um, so in, in, in kind of really in respect and in understanding the really deep racist history of this country um, where um, a lot of police forces went across the South and in just in general institutions, the institution within rising um, a lot of times out of, or at least parts of the institution practices out of uh, direct uh, repressive and oppressive uh, measures and means and ideology towards black Americans. Um, and, and some uh, much people much more brilliant than I have, have um, explored thoughts and ideas um, 
that uh, black America is within a domestic colonial relationship within the United States. Um, and as we see this law enforcement apparatus that oftentimes goes beyond just individuals, good or bad individuals, or even just ideas of implicit bias, and, and really when it comes to race, implicit bias is just racism. Um, and even then, there's, there's limits on even implicit bias training and, and how far it even goes. But, you know, there's definitely, I would say, strong arguments out there um, towards completely reevaluating the, really the institution of policing itself. Uh, from the, the ground up as it's, you know, rooted in some, some deeply racist practices and even active infiltration of white supremacist individuals and organizations um, as recently as an FBI report in 2006. Um, and, you know, Wisconsin was once home to the, the Grand Wizard of the KKK. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not anything that's, as we know, or I'm sure you know, anything that's prevalent in, in just in the South, um, particularly looking at, like, Chicago MPD, uh, Chicago PD history. Um, but how... I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had a hard time trying to formulate this question throughout, but um, how does that really, you know, uh, the really deep racist history of this country, and particularly in attachment to law enforcement, coincide with trying to, um, and I don't even like the word reform, but reform police departments um, towards practices that don't show, like in mass, an 11 to 1 arrest ratio. I have a hard time believing that. Uh, black Minnesotians commit uh, um, crime at a uh, rate 11 times higher than its white residents. I think some of that goes back to why Herman approached this when we talked about how you're going to present to you. Like, we didn't just want to talk about excessive force and logistics, right? What is the role of police? What is the police function? And when you start thinking that our job is to make communities safe, the police make it safe, and how do we do that? Well, largely by preventing crime would be the first thing we could do. Yeah. Um, like even then, I have a, a pushback to the idea that, that that police make communities safe, resources make communities safe. If you look at the safest communities, they have the most resources, not the most police officers. No, but if we grant that there needs to be some police force, that we're not ready to abolish it entirely, um, you have a couple options, right? You could limit their legal authority to an incredibly narrow band of simply law enforcement responses, or if we're going to retain police with the kind of legal authority they currently possess, then I think what we need to do is say what percentage of your time is being spent trying to prevent crime problems in our community, and largely what that means is you're a resource broker, right? and that's what really good creative police are now. It's about mobilizing community stakeholders, increasing community resources, doing things like educating us about the fact that if you make them take every mentally ill person they have contact with to Winnebago, guess what? A lot of people are going to end up in the jail because Winnebago is really far away. And then it's up to our communities to decide whether we're going to give them the tools they need to help people who they are called to respond to. Because the reality is, whether they like it or not, police are called to respond to really complicated situations that often aren't about crime fundamentally. They're about social disadvantage. Um, and encouraging through hiring practices, through training, through retention, through promotion, the kind of people who are creative problem solvers with diverse backgrounds. And again, we can always be better, but I kind of go around the country whenever I go do any research project or conference, I try to do a ride along wherever I am. And so I see lots of different agencies. And we have a fundamentally more diverse and certainly more educated 
police force than many, many, many communities in the United States of America. Um, and that's to our credit. That doesn't mean that we can't do more with the people that we have to help them respond in ways that aren't about arresting and punishing and stigmatizing particularly every, anyone in our community, but particularly our minority community, because we know we do fundamentally have a problem with our metrics here. And I think you named it that our biggest problem is about resource infusion and access to resources for the poor in our community. We're very segregated and we're very, very um, stratified um, by class and race. Uh, but when we look at what is the police role in being involved in that, I think it's about helping the talented officers we have maximize their creativity to find solutions to problems other than arrest, which is not to say that sometimes arrest isn't the right answer to a problem you're faced with at the moment. Sometimes it's the only only option on the table out of a lot of bad choices. Arrest is the best one. Uh, but there are many situations they encounter where we can encourage better problem solving, going back and figuring out what is the nature of the problem and how do we mobilize the people who could solve this problem outside of criminal justice. With that, um, I'd like to thank you very much. It's been a very stimulating conversation. I think, think that we could go all night and continue to, to ask some very good questions, but, but again, um, we, we need to move on, and, and I think that with, with OAR, the next phase of, of our program for this evening, I think will dovetail to some of the, some of the topics that, uh, that Cecilia and Herman have, have discussed with us tonight. So once again, thank you. We greatly appreciate your, your, um, your presentation and the, and the time that you spent with us. Uh, so for the committee, now is the time for you to take a very quick and short break. Uh, please. Uh, make sure that you're back in five minutes, and then we'll be transitioning into the OIR's presentation. Thank you. Uh, call the meeting back to order. Rachel says we don't need to do a roll call. Um, yeah, I think we have quorum. So um, we'll move to the second agenda item, and I'll read it as it is reflected in the agenda, which is update from OIR. Michael Jenico and staff on meetings with community groups, city agencies, data gathered, and on future work processes, priorities, and timeline. Uh, so if you guys, gentlemen, wouldn't mind coming to the front. Um, from my understanding, as they give the updates, Mike said, you know, he'll field questions and comments from you guys as, as it comes. And um, also, Luis and I want to thank everyone who's sent referrals to the OIR group. Um, they met with, uh, it seems like, a lot of community leaders and coalitions throughout the week. So with that being said, I'll give the floor to them. Uh, thank you, Christian. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, we got in Sunday, <laughs> and I woke up Monday, and I said, well, here we go again. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, on my calendar, um, spring is coming like right around the corner, but that's okay. And then it got sunny and it's really nice. So, um, maybe, um, I'll start by just, uh, and if, as, as, uh, Christian indicated, if you have any questions, um, along the way or comments, don't 
need to wait to the end. Let me just um, sort of give you a thumbnail of what we've been doing this week and then what we've been doing since we've been gone. Um, Captain Schaff is, is, our, is our liaison with regard to documents that we've been asking for, and, and, and she and, and her department have been very helpful in providing information and documents as, um, as homework assignments while we're away from Madison. And so we've been spending a lot of time looking at those and starting to get a better understanding of how they do what they do in, in various areas, all the way from uh, recruiting and hiring of officers through um, internal investigations, uh, use of force review, um, and, and a number of other um, police tasks that we've been asked to look at as part of our as part of our responsibilities. Uh, when we're here, um, we're focusing on, on doing two things uh, primarily. Uh, one is to um, interface with the various um, entities within the police department uh, who have different responsibilities, specialized units, in order to, um, under again, continue to understand how it is that they do what they do. For a, a size, uh, a department of its size, um, I would say, and I think Steve would agree, that the number of specialized units is, is incredible. Um, not all of them are, are sizable because of its size, but the fact that they have been thinking about um, different aspects um, uh, of specialties, um, I think, is, is to their credit. Um, but, but then, uh, 60 to 70 percent of our time while we're here is really to, to do what we said we were going to do, which is to outreach to, to the community and community groups and community individuals. And, and the reason that we're doing that is that, I think I've said this again, but I, I think it's worth repeating, uh, the fact that we are not from Madison helps us with regard to objectivity, I think, with regard to independence, with regard to no preconceived mo notions of what is going on here with the city and with the department, and and um, sort of a, you know the ability to have sort of a fresh set of eyes, um, I think is an advantage to that degree. But it also is a disadvantage in that we don't know Madison and we don't know the challenges and we don't know the community. We didn't, and so in order for us to be informed uh, in the decisions that. Um, and the findings and recommendations we'll eventually make, we need to have that insight. We need to hear from folks about their experiences with the department and ideas that they may have about the ways in which they uh, would hope their department would be. Uh, because this is all about how is the department doing and what would you like it to be if you don't like it right now. And, and to the same degree, there are a number of folks in this community who are pretty pleased with the way it is. So we have an obligation to, to talk to them and ask them why they think that. Um, so that, 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 that's what we've been doing. And um, I, I think we've had a successful week. And as Christian indicated, a good part of that success is a result of you all. Um, and, and your willingness to provide us with contact information with folks and with ideas about programs that are around that we should be learning about, people that have had unique experiences 
um, and, and a better understanding of how the, the criminal justice system works in this county and what doesn't work so well, all right, what doesn't work so well. And while our focus is on the police department, the police department doesn't work in isolation. It, it works in a community. And that's why it's really important to hear from the community about other aspects that have an impact on policing. And I'll just give you one example, and it's not a big example. It just comes immediately to mind. Um, the fact of the matter is that while police officers do have a lot of discretion in what they do, and in some ways they need to, um, and, and then there's this discussion about with regard to force, with regard to other aspects that are um, flashpoints. Um, and uh, the ultimate authority, as I've said before, is the authority of police officers to use force, to cabin that discretion in a way that is consistent with how we expect officers to perform. Um, but, you know, police officer discretion is also cabined in other ways that in some ways have unintended consequences. So, for example, um, it's not unique to Madison, not unique to Wisconsin, but state law requires that when there is a domestic violence incident and there is evidence of injury, that there is no discretion with regard to how to treat that, that that is going to result in an arrest. And it also is the case, and statistically, statistically proven throughout the country, that uh, domestic violence calls and arrests um, impact more heavily on uh, people of color than, than, than Caucasians. So if that is a fact and there is no discretion, those numbers are going to be skewed, not because of what Madison and police, police is doing, but because of what state law demands. So that's just an example. Uh, again, and, and the real example, what I want you to take away from that is, is my larger point, which is how what Madison PD is doing it interrelates to a whole lot of other factors, right? Um, and, and that can't be um, disregarded. So uh, what, have we, what have we done? I, I'll just give you an idea of some of the, the folks and, and organizations we've talked to just this week. Um, been over to Fountain, Life, uh, Fountain of Life three times um, to talk with various folks over there. Um, spent a really good morning as a result of um, Mario uh, hooking us up with um, uh, the Latino Support Network. And as a result of that interface, now have a number of, uh, of additional contacts and folks that, that we will want to be speaking with. And, and thank you, Mario, for that. Um, Jerry got us to see the, uh, the officers of the Wisconsin Hmong Association, and that was a, a, a great meeting, according to Steve. I was double booked, and I ended up being over at Reverend Mitchell's uh, church as a result of Matthew uh, uh, hooking me up with Jerome Flowers. And we had a listening session there uh, of church members and um, of a number of University of Wisconsin college students that, that Jerry, Jer <coughs> Jerome brought over. And that was an interesting uh, dialogue. And, and I just sat back and, and, and let them at it. But it was great to hear their experiences and their concerns and their perspectives and their insights. Um, uh, we um, also got to, to see um, and meet with uh, Z Hawkness um, and uh, his group. And, and, and they 
are involved in uh, helping out. Uh, the group has a lot of things going on, but one of their focuses is, is looking at homeless advocacy and uh, trying to help homeless uh, deal with, with things like the fines that, that they get and can't pay. Um, and and that, that provided an opportunity for me to sit with the folks who have a very interesting perspective on their encounters with, with police, with jails, prisons, and the criminal justice system in general. Um, going over to see um, some folks at Freedom Inc. tomorrow. Um, so our, our, our journey isn't over this week. We've got a, f a full day tomorrow as well. Um, we've also had a chance to see, to talk with former police officers and former police executives. Um, had a chance to meet with Noble Ray, your former chief, um, this week. And um, uh, a fellow that was just recently, until recently, the chief of police of the Pittsburgh Police Department, uh, Mr. McClay. We're going to be seeing um, him tomorrow. Talked to a number of alder, alders. I uh, met with a number of alders this week as well, and uh, some folks from the ASLU drove over from Madison. And uh, Julie Rulin, our partner, was able to meet with them uh, yesterday. And uh, 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 Veronica, who's, who's not here, um, she was able to invite us over, and I met with her and her staff at, the, at her domestic violence unidos. Um, and, and got a, an insight from how, when they call the police, you know, what experiences they have with regard to their domestic violence clients. Um, that was very helpful. Um, had a meeting with Representative Chris Taylor and uh, heard about some of the um, legislative initiatives that she's working on statewide um, and learned about some of the impact uh, that some of her successful legislation has already had uh, so, so we're going to be looking at that. Um, my colleague Julie went over to see Journey and some folks there. Uh, that was very helpful. Uh, I know I'm missing folks um, because I am missing folks. But Steve, who else has the sheriff was sheriff interesting Mahoney. to me. He was nice, kind enough to to fit us into his schedule and had some very interesting insights from their perspective in the criminal justice system. Uh, I had the chance in, with my colleague Julie to meet with the mayor again. He's been terrific about setting aside time for us on each of our visits, and I was with him for an hour and a half. He's got a very, very interesting perspective on a lot of different things by virtue of his office and his, his long-time uh, role in the, the city and seeing the different evolutions that it's gone through. So he's been a great source of information for us. Regarding the special units in the police department that we've had a chance to meet with a lot, um, we met with the Racial Dis Disparate Impact um, Committee, uh, with uh, the uh, educational resource officers. We have met with the mental health officers this week, the neighborhood officers. We went to a neighborhood watch meeting. Uh, we saw the community policing teams, and we met with the officer advisory committee. And I have no idea what any of them do anymore because they're all, it's all a big confusion right now. <laughs> but they all do a lot. Um, and we learned a lot about, about all of that. Um, I uh, also wanted to give a pitch for our website. I actually asked you to give a pitch for our website. Okay. We have a well, website. We, we do. I, I think it's, it's just, not our website. It's the city's website. It, it, but we have a page. Just go. 
and by the way, I want to be sure to acknowledge Tori Petaway as well. Um, the, the folks from her office have been very accommodating, and she sat with us for a couple hours earlier this week. And, and the work that she's doing in the city and, and with a special focus on the police department has been very instructive to us. So as for the website, um, the, the, uh, the cityofmadison.com website and the mayor's page i think our uh there's a link to our little mini page if you go to the mayor's office flash page on the the city of madison website and it's really uh, they've done a very nice job for us with the just some ba- we they asked us to provide whatever information we wanted about our group and who we are and some supporting documents uh, and also, maybe most importantly, they asked, gave us the opportunity to create a survey that they would then facilitate the, you know, the distribution of, obviously, through the website. And so that survey has been up for, I want to say, for a week or ten days now, not too long, because they, we, had, we went back and forth to iron out the uh, various um, dotting of I's and crossing of T's. But we're really, really looking forward to seeing those results, and we know that that's only a, you know, that's a, a window. It's not the only window, and it's not going to be comprehensive just because there's a certain amount of self-selection that goes into the whole website. But they've actually, got, I think they've built some pretty, they have some pretty cool ways of making sure they don't have the same person in his or her basement. I've tried to take the survey 10 times, and they only let me take it once. They're like, they recognize the computer, and they're like, hey, OIR is fantastic, fantastic. fantastic. Uh, they, they, they know who's, you know, they know if the IP address has, has taken the survey, apparently, which terrifies me on the one hand, but uh, I think it also helps kind of spread things around a little bit as well and make sure that, that again, you're getting as much of a fair... Um, Exactly. It could. I have no idea what's going on there. So just just to uh, add a, a little bit to what Mike has been saying about our experience. Oh, okay. I just met with uh, with some folks this morning from the city, and 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 this is a suggestion that Mario actually brought to me um, earlier in the week, and and others have as well. And that is, we're gonna uh, we're gonna try and add an, a page to our website. Our website is intended to be done in five to ten minutes, but we're gonna try and add a piece to it that if people have a personal experience or a narrative they want to provide us, that, that, that the, the survey provides, us, provides that opportunity to do so as well. And we certainly encourage you to, you know, get the word out to the folks that you're in regular contact with, and we are, are certainly interested in as wide and thorough a range of responses as we can get. So uh, I also want to thank Captain Schaff while she's here. She is, draws the short straw of trying to help us coordinate our schedule as far as inside the department, and it is not an easy thing to do uh, on top of all her other responsibilities. And she does a great job, and the people within the department have been extremely accommodating of us. Uh, and, and, you know, I've met with people, and it's been a very routine experience that they will, you know, show up for a one o'clock meeting that's scheduled for, you know, to go to two o'clock, and at three o'clock they're still talking and engaged and happy to answer as many questions as I have. So, uh, I want to certainly acknowledge that. Uh, it's I can remember the good old days last summer and fall when we were first learning about this process. Uh, and I, I can remember saying to Mike, looking at the RP, I'm like, are they a year? Are they kidding? Do they really need that long to do this? And now I'm saying to him, how the heck are we going to finish this in, in just one year's uh, short time? So 
Uh, on our third visit, we're getting lost a little less frequently than we were before, so we are making progress. Uh, and I will say I, I very, very much enjoy coming here, and I find it to be a fascinating place in, in so many different ways. And, and the more we learn about it, the more engaged we are with the project and enthusiastic about the chance to, to make a contribution of some kind. What's fascinating is that you can have a conversation with, with one person at 9 o'clock and be nodding and feel like you've really got the hang of it. And then at 1 o'clock you have a meeting with somebody else who's telling you something that's almost diametrically opposed, and they both make complete sense in their own way. Uh, so the, our job is to try to sort through that and marry it up and reconcile it to the extent possible, and I think that there are places to do that. And it was interesting to hear um, Cecilia earlier today to, to in her talk about the, the frustration that's, that sometimes happens. And, and, Matthew, you were talking about in the accountability context and, you know, do people have confidence in the, the – results that um, occur when the police investigate themselves. But that paradox where the community is genuinely frustrated, but the, the policy and the law are, are basically saying, hey, this was legal there, so there isn't really a place to, to hold our officers accountable or punish officers for something that the community just feels in its gut isn't right. And that's a, a stalemate that can be very frustrating. And she, I thought, spoke very eloquently about some of the legal dynamics for it and the reasons why police have been given the latitude that they've been given. But the, the trick is to say, well, okay, so how do we find a, a third way? How do we break that stalemate instead of this constant frustration or the the police being defensive and saying, you know, hey, we, we, we were justified in doing this and the, the public not feeling that. I think there are ways. Uh, I think it's important to be creative, and I think the department in a lot of ways does a really, really good job and it has a willingness to do that in, in ways that are different. I think Madison is different than other jurisdictions that we've worked at in their, their acceptance of the, the value of innovation, and I certainly don't want to leave out uh, the opportunity that we had to, to speak with, with Professor Goldstein er, er, earlier this week. Mike and I sat with him for a couple hours. He was very gracious with his time. We've heard his name so much, and he's very much of a, an innovator, you know, sort of nationally in terms of just a new way of looking at what police do and how they do it and why they do it, and to try to, you know, incorporate those ideas and revive them and apply them to what's going on in the city now is something that I think is a, a great opportunity as well. So thank you. The other, the only, I just want to add a couple things, and, and I'll be getting a chance to meet with Cecilia tomorrow in a more extended one-on-one -on -one opportunity. But um, one of the highlights of, of, of this project for me has been the opportunity to spend the afternoon with uh, Professor Herman Goldstein. And... Um, we had scheduled an hour and a half, and we were into it for two hours plus. And he I served snacks. And everything. He served snacks. It was really nice. It was at his apartment. Can I live with you for a few days just to <laughs> just to absorb? As somebody who's in the business, I mean, this is something that is an incredible opportunity. So I just may may end up at your door. Uh, oh, that's great. Um, but but it has it was a very insightful as I knew it would be experience to to have that opportunity as. as there aren't that many of us that do this, and he's been doing this. I thought I've been doing it a long time, but he's been, you know, he's at the advent, uh, sort of creating this this whole line of work. And, and for that, I'm appreciative and, and honored to have a chance to spend some time with him. Um, 
the other thing that, that has happened, and it was just coincidence, I think, more than anything else, but there have been some significant events that happened last week and that while we're here that have really, you know, shaped the conversation of, of pretty much everyone we've talked to, which is, um, and, and no surprise here, but the, the, the Tony Robinson lawsuit was settled last week and announced, the settlement was announced, and, and that certainly has had, you know, people thinking about, uh, all of those issues that, you know, happened around two years ago today. Um, and, and, and the way in which that has all resolved itself, I think, has been interesting and certainly worthy of conversation of, of pretty much everyone we, we talk, we've talked to this week. And the other thing that happened was that the Police and Fire Commission uh, a couple of days ago came down with its opinion, right, about the, um, the complaint that was brought against uh, – Chief Koval about uh, the comment that comment that he made at a council meeting, common council meeting. So, uh, in some ways, I wish the world would stand still until we did our work, but it's not going to stand still. And, and in fact, it's in some ways adv advantageous because as this community responds and moves forward, and as uh, as things that are not initiated by us happen, it provides an, another opportunity to visit those issues and those flashpoints. And what do people in this community think about them? And that's been very helpful to us uh, uh, to further inform us about about what is, uh, what is of concern of the community and what the community thinks might be some of the, the solutions. Um, Steve's right. I mean, we're going to be we're going to be into it uh, through the summer and fall. But I think we're still we are on schedule. We are on schedule. Absolutely. We are on schedule, and um, we we look forward to continuing to to interface with you all. But as I as I've told folks this week, and it it, it can't be understated. Um, I think I, I I suspected this, but it is born true, and that is. Your involvement and engagement and, and ability to and willingness and ability to facilitate for us has given us a leg up and has really cut through a lot of the facilitation we would have had to do otherwise on our own, and uh, that would have been harder to do from Los Angeles. And for that, we're grateful. Keep, all, keep those referrals coming in, and um, we want to do more outreach. There are other folks and, and groups we already want to see. We want to get uh, more involved in, in a school setting, and we want to talk to students uh, uh, as we move forward. We want to learn more about the youth courts and the restorative justice that's going on here, and we don't have enough uh, uh, knowledge about that. Um, we want to um, talk to folks on the public defender and defense attorney community, and we're going we're gonna to work on that. And... Um, we still haven't talked to the DA. We will. And um, the Department of Criminal Investigations, who now does the criminal investigations of Austin Ball shootings, we've yet to interface with them. But those are, those are obvious things that we still need to do. But, we, you know, we are still open and, and willing to hear from you all about folks that we should continue to talk to. Um, but it's been a great week. It's been, it's been really – we've learned a lot uh, in these past four days. And, and uh, the learning curve continues to – to go there, uh, it, it, it is starting to like, you know, when we talk to somebody and they mention a name, we we have we have them captured already. That that's a good thing. So you know, there is a finite finite group of folks, but we're not there yet, and we we look to continue to to to, to learn and listen.
I may be writing like a madman on New Year's Eve, but we will finish this thing by, <laughs> by 2017. 2018. So, right, the beginning of the beginning of 2018. Right, December 31st. 10 p.m. Oh, yeah. Is that going to be California time? Because that gives us two more yeah, hours. Yeah, we got a, a West Coast. We'll we'll buy ourselves a little time. Questions or comments on specifics for them? I think first, uh, first week in May is what we're looking at, but we will we will firm that up and get messages to all of you about our, our date when we get back. So we So we'll just probably decide by the end of March and okay. certainly get word out with at least a month's lead time. So. So another comment I heard about the server was that it was only in English. We're expecting in Spanish and also Mandarin and probably Hmong. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Good idea. And our office provides translation. Mm -hmm. So if you need those things, if you need the survey translated, we can provide that. The Department of Civil Rights. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. We're going to work on that. So Spanish, Hmong, and Mandarin. So okay. We'll, we can talk about that offline, but that's great to know. Thanks. Yeah. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe keep sending you groups, especially for young people that you can meet. That was another. That. Oh, that was a great absolutely. feedback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. You had heard. <laughs> well, that um, that concludes the uh, the agenda. So we'll entertain a motion to adjourn. All right, moved by Keith, seconded by by Jerry. Uh, all in favor, signify by sitting aye. All right, motion carries. Thank you. It's adjourned. Thanks, everybody.